Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we open the word, guide and guide us, show us what you would want us to see from this. We just thank you for your love, your care, and for your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 7. Remember them which have rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Consider the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Be not carried away by diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not, profit, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar thereof, and they, they have no right to eat, which serve the, the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. The first verse here, remember them which have rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. So here, Paul is talking about the pastors and teachers of their church. Remember those individuals and that have it and have spoken to you the word of God, the teaching the word of God. And he's trying to make sure that people are understanding that they have honor. <laughs> All right. And it, it's kind of an interesting situation if the early church, especially at the time that this was written, it would be very interesting that sometimes the slave would be ended up touched by God and getting appointed to be the pastor and teacher of the church. And then their master might be part of the same church. So outside of church, the master was in charge of the slave and inside the church. <laughs> The slave had, you know, the control of the church. So it was a very interesting world that they were living in. And Paul is here saying, remember them. And he says specifically, he says, to uh, whose faith you follow and consider the end of their conversation. We talked about last week, this word for conversation literally means their manner of life, their lifestyle. So your, your teacher's lifestyle should match up to what they are teaching. Otherwise, they're just being a hypocrite and nobody's going to follow them. So this is saying, look at your leaders. If they're following in the faith, they're, they're walking correctly, honor them. Seek after what they're, you know, follow what they're doing. Follow, follow their example. Uh, when Paul was writing to Timothy, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And he's saying... This is a good thing. You should have a leader that you can say, you know, I want to be like them. <laughs> you know, they, they've got, they're handling the word right. They're dealing with people correctly and all of that. And this is what he's saying. Remember those individuals. And then he goes on to say, uh, very interesting, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus has never changed. And it's kind of interesting, the word the same has another definition that it can be, it can also be himself. Jesus himself, yesterday, today, and forever. And basically the same thing, he doesn't change. He is who he is and doesn't change. But it was kind of an interesting thing because, you know, a lot of times people will accuse us, well, you know, the Old Testament, there's one God, and the New Testament, there's another God. Well, I don't see that when I read the Old Testament and New Testament. I see a God of grace and mercy in the Old Testament. Yes, there tends to be more judgment and all of that. But 
there's judgment and everything in the New Testament as well. And yes, we do see mercy and grace emphasized more in the New Testament. But I'd read the Old Testament, and I find his mercy and his grace and his love all through the Old Testament. All right? Uh, so I don't see any difference in this. I see Jesus all through the Old Testament. Uh, he was with Adam and Eve walking in the garden. He was the one that saw Joshua when he, when he challenged him to stand. He was the one that would have seen, been walking with Moses on the, on the mount. He would have been the one that was in the lion's den with Daniel and in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was the one that met Abraham uh, and said, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the one that met Abraham when he came back from the battle of the five kings. All through this, we see Jesus in the Old Testament very clearly, and all of it is a testimony of him. So even if it's not a literal picture, it's a testimony of him. He is the picture of all the sacrifices. He is the, the picture that's given in the tabernacle. He is all through the scripture. So we see him never changing. And this is why it's so wonderful for us. We just grab hold of it and say, this is our God. And our God hasn't progressed from a mean, nasty person to a, to a loving God in the New Testament. He's always been who he is. His holiness and his righteousness demand judgment, but his mercy and his righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ allows forgiveness. And this is the thing about this. He's the same, always. And I find it just wonderful because you read the Old Testament and you go, wow, they're the same as they were in the New Testament and they're the same as they are now. You know, nothing, not even, not even God, but in reality, much, not much of the world has ever changed. Men are evil and eventually will either die in their sins and go to hell or convert and be changed by God to, to live a better life. And that's just the way it is. And evil left to itself gets worse. And we see that in the past, we see it, and we see it now. You know, evil tends to keep getting worse. People w want to go deeper and deeper into sin as they get captured by it. Because the same amount of sin does not bring the same pleasure, so they try to find something that is going to give them the pleasure they think they're going to get without God. And the good news is when somebody gets saved, they get God in them, and all of a sudden they realize, I, get, I got what I missed. I've got what I was always looking for. I've got what I'm missing. And then we get more of it, which is even the good thing on the, on the righteous side. The, fall, the more we follow God, the closer we follow him, the more we seem to get. Now, we get all of him at the beginning, but the more we understand that we got of him. And it just gets better. I've loved walking with God for 50 years, and he just gets sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And and, you know, everything looks better, and I understand him better, and I understand his love better, and everything just seems to be <laughs> getting better. He's still the same. He's the same as God came into me 50 years ago, but I know him better, and I understand him better. And I will never understand him completely, but I understand him better. And this is where we can really take comfort. He doesn't change. Our understanding of him changes but he never changes. And the scriptures do have this idea of it, a little bit of progression. God shows us more and more and more of himself through the scriptures. And then when he gets to the New Testament, he's able to show more of his love and mercy because everything's centered on the physical Jesus who has come, not the future Jesus that will come. <laughs> and so, but he's never changed. 
And I love the fact that God does not change. This tells us that whatever he tells us in the scriptures, we can hold on to. Because he's not going to go, well, that was what I told Moses, but it doesn't matter to you guys. <laughs> you know, I changed my mind. <laughs> That's not our God. He's never going to change our mind. He says he loves people. He loves people. He says, I'm going to send the Savior. And he sent the Savior. And because he said I was going to, he, he treated it as if he had already done it because he knew that he was not going to change. And Jesus said the same thing. As soon as he said he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world in the Father's eyes, because as soon as he said, I will, the Father said, you have done. <laughs> Even though it didn't happen until many, you know, 4,000 years you know, of our time and however long before the event of creation, as soon as Jesus said, I'll die for them, God said, okay, you did it. The Father says, okay, it's done. Why? Because Jesus is say, you know, it tells the truth. He said he was going to do it. It was done. You know, and you know, every once in a while you can find somebody who is so honest and their integrity is so strong. If they tell you they're going to do something, you know it's going to be done. I mean, unless, unless all hell breaks out against them you know, and they are in the hospital or something, you know that when they say they're going to do it, it's done. The only thing in Jesus' case, he's God. It, there was nothing that would stop him from accomplishing what he said he was going to do. And this is something that has been lost in our day and age. When, you, know, you can't take people at their word hardly at all anymore. Somebody says, well, I'm going to do it. And what they're really saying, I'm going to do it as long as nothing better comes along. <laughs> and in our world, something better comes along almost all the time. And you, know, you can't get them to accomplish. You know, their word does not mean anything. And it wasn't so far back that when somebody said they were going to do it, they understand the scriptures and said, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to make sure that it happens. But in this case, we're looking at God who does not change. And here, I just love that little statement in here. You know, we're following Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is kind of just thrown in there. You know, uh, he's talking about leaders, and then he just throws in, Jesus doesn't change. Uh, and then it says, be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. Now, I think this is very interesting because what is happening in our day and age, we have diverse and strange doctrines, not just from the world, which would be, expect, be expected, but we have many churches where pastors are teaching diverse and strange doctrines that aren't from the word of God. There are many pastors who won't, won't call anything sin because they might offend somebody. They won't, they won't uh, challenge anybody to, to live godly because that might offend somebody. They're trying to find new and unique ways to entertain people to get them to come to church rather than centering in on the word of God. Now, I'm not their judge, but you know, it's like, what is my purpose is to teach God's word. Now, do I have to do some things to, you know, to draw people in? Probably. I can't just be dry and boring the whole time. I've got to apply it to today's life and make sure people understand that it's valuable. But there's so much going on in the church that I'm not sure is what God wants. You know, when you go to a church and there is a rock concert going on in, in church so that they can draw a crowd 
to hear watered down milk for their, for their message, I am not sure that that's being a good steward of God's word. But again, that's between them and God, but it's not the church that I'm going to go to. I want to hear the word of God taught. Now, good music is good. All right. I've never been into loud rock music when my ears are bleeding because the music is playing. It's too loud as far as I'm concerned. All right. And that was even if I went to a concert. And I stopped going to even Christian concerts for that very reason because even the songs that I liked were played at decibels that made my head ache when I left. And I'm going, this isn't worth it. I'll buy their music, but I'm not going to go and have my, have my body assaulted by, by, by sound waves. You know, but what did they do? And they were trying to entertain the world. That's what the world wanted. And again, they have to answer to God on what, on what they're doing. But I have a problem with it. But here he's saying, don't be carried away by diverse, variegated, you know, different colors and uh, strange doctrines. Now, so this is what the word says is important. And we cannot change the word of God. And this is something interesting. I've told people, you know, I could have a, full, a church full of people if I could just get away from not calling sin, sin. We'd fill this church. I don't know what I'd be teaching out of, but we could fill, the, we could fill this because I've had several people get upset with me because I call certain activities sin. I don't know. I can't change God's message. You know, if I did, then I'd have to answer to God, and I'd rather answer to God for teaching his word than answering to him for getting a large crowd of, and not telling the gospel message. But this is something important. He's saying, don't be carried. And this word literally is driven. It's the idea of being pushed by a storm. And this is happening so often, not just in churches going the wrong way, but we have cults and false religions that are giving people things that tickle their ears and make them feel comfortable. And we've got to be very careful about what we're hearing. Is what we hear biblical? And unfortunately, many times the biblical message stomps on our toes. Just the way it is. You know, this morning we didn't get to it, but you know, uh, when Jesus is chastising the Pharisee, the one guy stands up and says, uh, you're reproaching us, you're making us feel bad. <laughs> you know, when you're attacking them, you're attacking us. And we don't feel good about it. You know, and so many times, we might even feel that way. You know, my toes just got stomped on in church, and I can't tell you. you know, unfortunately, some of the times, the messages I preach stomp on my own toes. <laughs> you know, but that's just the way it is. When we're teaching God's word, the Holy Spirit moves and convicts. And if the Holy Spirit's not moving and convicting, there's probably something wrong with the message. Now, it doesn't mean that every single person is going to be convicted in every single service, but you know, if somebody isn't being convicted, then something's wrong with the message because the Holy Spirit is trying to make people grow. And so we have this whole thing of not being driven about. But it does mean that we're going to have things. It goes, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them which have been occupied therein. So he says it's a good thing for the heart to be established. 
with grace. The message of God, the grace message of God, that we are forgiven by Jesus Christ, blood and sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, but that does not mean he's going to leave us wallowing around in our sin. The grace message, we get convicted, we repent, and we know that we're forgiven. And this, this is a hard thing because many pastors will not teach grace messages because they are so afraid that if they really preach grace that their congregation is go off, go off and go crazy in sin. Now, I don't know why they don't trust the Holy Spirit because every time I've been to a church that actually preaches the grace message, the people grow because they're free. They're no longer looking at God in fear. And this is where he goes in that second. Not with meats. All right. What he's talking about is rules. And again, he's talking to the Hebrew people. Oh, they had all these meat they, could, they couldn't eat. They could only eat certain meat. They could only eat certain things. They had to do all these different rules. So he's saying, be established by grace, not through the laws and the rules. Laws and rules just make it that people feel like they're worshiping an angry God who's just looking to beat them with a stick and a rod all the time. And then that makes people afraid of God. Well, wait, 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 I gotta be careful because if I do anything that's gonna make him mad, I'm gonna get hit. That's not the God we have. He's a God of love and mercy that will, yes, chastise us when we purposely go against him, but who's waiting and saying, I love you so much, I have gifts for you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I found, was blind, but now I see. Grace frees us to serve God correctly. The laws bind us up and put us into fear. We may be serving God in fear, but we're doing it trembling like, Okay, what am I going to do? You know, what's, what, I'm going to make a mistake and he's going, to, he's going to pound on me and it's going to be my fault that somebody goes to hell because I didn't, I didn't do things right and, and I'm going to be judged and I'm going to, you know, fear makes us cringe. The law brings us into that, into that fearful state. Grace takes off the chains and says, you are free. You are free. And some people are freer than others because they really fully experience grace. Others are still bound up in the law and they don't fully experience grace. God gives us liberty to serve him. Liberty to walk out there. Now, he will convict us the longer we walk with him, the less that we cannot go out and do because he's gonna say, now this is, this is something you're not supposed to do, not because it's gonna send you to hell not because I'm going to punish you, but it is just not what I want you to do. And we understand this, and whether you've had good parents that you wanted to, to, to make happy, or maybe a good boss if you didn't have a good family. And you go, I really like this boss. I really like this. I like mom and dad. I want to do what they want me to do. Not because I'm afraid I'm going to get fired in the case of the boss or beat in the case of mom or dad, but I just want to do things that please them. That is what grace leads us to. We know that God loves us so much, it's like, well, I don't want to go out and steal because God, 
that's going to hurt God. So I want to be as honest, not just not steal, but I want to be to the far side of that, be as honest as I possibly can and deal correctly with everybody's materials. And I don't want to, you know, get out and commit adultery and fornication. I want to be as pure in my relationships as I possibly can, not because I'm afraid of the punishment for disobedience, but because God is pure and he wants me to be this way so I would just want to please him and this is where it comes down to grace leads us to that kind of relationship with him because it shows us his love toward us and our desire is to just please him not please him to get into heaven not please him to stay out of hell but just because his love for me I want to return a small portion of it back by being obedient and this is what he's saying here. We're to be established with grace, not by rules. The unfortunate thing, so many of us, we say we don't like rules, but we like rules because they tell us how to live. And then we want to break the rules that we wanted in the first place. And it's a, quite, it's a very strange cycle. We get saved by grace, we're happy with grace, and then we want to go, okay, now how do I live, how do I live the Christian life? Tell me the rules that I need to live the Christian life because I'm really happy being a Christian, so give me the rules that I need to be a Christian. And there's always people that are willing to help you find rules to live as a Christian. The only problem is you can't find them in the Bible. They'll give you lots and lots of rules of how you must live to be a good Christian. And then when we get all these rules, then we get bound up and tied up in chains of the new rules trying to serve God. And we end up just as bad as we were. Well, probably not just as bad. We're not dealing with sin, but we're bound up. We're bound up and we're going, this just isn't what I wanted. I'm not happy. It's not, it's not really all that great. Now, I'm not living in the sinful activities and getting the consequences that are bad, but I'm still just as bound. I'm bound following a bunch of rules, trying to please a God that, I, that, that didn't give me the rules in the first place. And I'm bound in chains that have taken my liberty away from me. And then I get into self-righteousness. You know, I'm, I'm obeying all these rules. Look at me. I'm miserable. I'm not happy because I'm not, I, you know, because I'm not walking in grace. I'm bound up in all these laws. But look at me because I'm serving God. I'm better than most of the other Christians in the church because I am obeying all these rules. And God says, I gave you grace. I gave you grace. And we need to really fully understand grace isn't the license to sin, but it also frees us from the law. Because now my motive is not to be obedient to laws and rules. My, my motivation is, God, I, you love me so much, I want to return that love back to you. And there's freedom in that kind of love. Now, if you, you know, we have Valentine's Day coming up, you know, if you're, looking to get, buy a Valentine's gift and you're feeling that you must buy a Valentine's gift because it's expected of you, do you really feel good about giving that gift? You know, but if it's like, I just want to, you know, I like this person so much, I just want to give them a gift, it's a whole different attitude. And this is the way we are with God. Our, our service to him is a gift back to him for all that he's given us, knowing that it's not even touching what he's done for me. And it's not earning heaven. It's not saying he's going to love me more because I do it. It's just, it's this, my small token back. 
and this is what he's saying. He goes, these following of the meats which have profited nothing to them that have, that have been occupied therein. Those who are occupied in the law profit nothing. Now, they look good to the church. You know, I've come every Sunday to church. I come every you know, Wednesday to church. I come every time the doors are open. I go to all the revivals. I go to all the prayer meetings. I'm there on the work days, and I'm giving my tithes, and I'm doing all these wonderful things, and everybody looks at them and says, oh, you're such a wonderful Christian. And they're going, boy, I sure would rather be someplace else tonight. You know, rather than being here at this Bible study tonight, I really wish I was in front of my TV watching the Super Bowl. Rather than being here at this meeting, I want to be watching the baseball or basketball game or, or watching this mo new movie that was coming out or the new, you know, I'd really rather be someplace else, but I have to be where God wants me to be when I'm bound up by the laws. And you might as well be out there watching, the, watching whatever it is you want to do rather than, than being there because you are bound by those laws and it's not doing you any good. And you're just miserable where you're at. Now, having said that, I, I appreciate everybody coming to church as often as you do. And that's what it should be. It should always be that you want to. And that's always well, been my case. Well, oftentimes we start feeling like we must because we're trying to please God in, in, by laws and rules. But we need to be able to shift from that to saying, I'm going to just honor God. And when we're starting a habit, we're starting to learn to read our Bible every day. Sometimes it starts out just that way. All right, here I go. Box is checked. I did it. Well, if it's still that way a year or two and down, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. I missed something, and I really have missed it. And you, know, you realize that it costs you something to miss it. Not, not that you're going to be... You know, oh God, oh man, God is going to beat me up because I didn't read the Bible or I didn't go to church or I didn't do this. God is going to pound up. You know, it's like, you know, boy, there's some hunger pains here. I've got to, you know, I didn't, I didn't take care of my, you know, my spirit. And that is where this whole grace message comes in. Grace motivates us to serve God in purity. Now, if people take it wrong and they live by making a license to sin, they're going to have to answer to God for that. You know, well, I can do whatever I want because I'm under grace. If that's your attitude, you're going to pay. If you are saved, you're really going to pay. And if you're not saved, you're going to pay when the judgment seat comes. But we cannot look at grace as being a license to sin. Grace, grace gives us freedom to serve God in a better way. Not out of tortured, my hands are chained, I've got to go do this, I've got to do that. You know, when we do this, you know, when we do this uh, parade coming up on, on, on St. Patrick's Day parade, I enjoy it. You know, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy passing the bags out. I really enjoy it when we have enough people that I can actually talk to some of the people. The, the couple of years where it's been just run down the street and pass out bags has not been as much fun as the ones where I could actually, you know, a couple of times we had kids and they gave out all the bags and I got to talk to people as we walked down the street and it was wonderful. You know, I'll do it either way because it's getting God's message out, but there's certain ones that are more fun than others. And, but what is the purpose of it? You know, I look at that as a wonderful time to be able to get the gospel message in people's hands. And I don't know who we've touched or how we've touched people. I'm trying to figure out how many years we've been doing it. I think we've been doing it almost every year that I've been here, which is nine or, nine or so years. So, But... Uh, 
It's been a long time. Yeah. And nobody's ever told us, I got saved because of you know, reading the track or, or anything. But you know, I can't believe that we've passed out 500 tracks in New Testaments every year and had no impact in anybody's lives at all. Well, it's the same way you're on the internet. I'm sure you have that impact too. I'm sure. But, and that's part of the thing. We don't know what we're doing and probably won't know until we get to heaven what the impact is that we've had on people's lives. And I do picture heaven being a time when we're going to have people coming up to us and saying, thank you. You did this. You gave this. You, you, know, you lived this way. Your, your life, the manner of life impressed me enough that I am here because of what you have done. And there are certain others that you may, if you've actually led somebody in the sinner's prayer, then you go, okay, you expect them to be there. But there will be others that you have no clue that you had anything to do with. And just be aware, you know. We do these, these uh, parades. Everybody who helps put the bags together. Everybody who's helped buy, buy uh, candy for it. Everybody who's given offerings that have then bought the Bibles and the tracts has a part in it. You know, we don't know. So you may not even been the one that gave out the bag. But all the parts that you had in, involved with it are going to be there. All because of grace. And you know, my hope is that we become a very grace-oriented church, that we live by grace, and then we allow others to live by grace. Because grace frees people to truthfully and honestly serve God with freedom not being bound. And I do not believe that somebody who's saved can use grace as a license to sin. If somebody's using grace as a license to sin, I'm going to have to look and say, is this person saved? Now, that's between them and God, but I'm going to look at it and say, if you're using grace as a license to sin, then I've got a problem with your salvation. Uh, because your conversation and your lifestyle is not, not leading to God. And if you can use his grace as a, as a license to sin, there's a problem because that is not how it should be. My love for him should say, oh, he's got me so free, I'm going to be able to serve. Then he goes in, we have an altar thereof. They have no right to eat which serve the, the tabernacle. And this is kind of an interesting statement. And let's take you into the Jewish mindset here. When you made an offering in the, tab in the tabernacle or the temple, the priest would kill the animal, all right? They would skin the animal. They got the skin of all the animals that were offered, that belonged to them. That was part of their pay. They also took, depending on which offering it was, they got a chunk of the meat, <laughs> which was part of their pay. So he's saying, we have an altar where they have no right. Who's the they? The priests. He's saying, we as Christians have an altar that the priests are not part of. Now in the temple, the priest had a part of the, temp of the altar that nobody else had a part of. And now he's flipping it around. It's kind of an interesting statement. You're going, we are priests of the high God because he said this earlier that Jesus is a greater priest. So he's going to have a greater altar. He's going to have a greater gift and because we are joint heirs with him we have access to this greater altar which is the Holy Spirit indwelling us in actuality that is the gift that we have the Holy Spirit dwells in us 
the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in the, our Lord who then dwells in us. And we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling in us, which gives us peace, gives us guidance, gives us something that was not seen. In the Old Testament, it says that a handful of people had the Holy Spirit come upon them, and I believe he came into them, just my belief on it. But here he's saying the priests are not the only ones that have a relationship with God, as the Israelites believed and the Jews. They believed that the priests were special. Now, the sad thing is, when you start reading the Old Testament about some of those priests and the Levites, there wasn't anything special about a lot of them. Uh, some of them were awful. <laughs> and yet, people honored their title, which is godly. They're priests. They're Levites. And they had honor just because of their title, even though many of them did not serve God. It was just their family position. You know, I'm a Levite. I'd rather be in the army. I'd rather be, be, a, be, a, be a, you know, chemist or whatever else, but I, I have to serve in the temple. And they did not serve with great integrity oftentimes. You know, I'm kind of glad we're on the other side of the cross because in, in their situation, I could not have been a pastor because I wouldn't have been born of the right family. All right? I wasn't a, Levi, a priest or a Levite, so I was not going to be be somebody who could, could be the teacher. Uh, so I like it being on this side uh, where God calls and I'm able to step out. And he says, we have an altar that they have no right to be at. And then he gets into, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood was brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burnt without the camp. So here we have the situation that when they got done with the, all the items that were on the altar, they would get them all swept up and whatever bones and carcass were left that hadn't been totally burnt were carried outside the camp in, a, in wagons or carts of some sort, outside the city, made a great big bonfire, and then totally burnt them so that they, nothing was left over to make the tabernacle uh, unclean. So they would take all of what was left and get rid of it, burn it. All the intestines, all the stuff that they took out were taken out of the camp every night, burned outside the camp because they were unclean. It would be quite a job. And the person who did it was unclean for a day or two, for 24 hours. So the person who had to carry all that stuff out every day, and it's probably more than one with, with millions of people offering sacrifices every day, there was probably a whole squad of them. The next day, they couldn't go back into the temple because they were unclean because of what they did. What they, did. they went out, they burned all the stuff, they would wash their clothes and everything, and they'd be unclean for 24 hours before they could go back into the temple to serve. And I don't know that I'd want that job. Besides the fact that it would be a very stinky job, uh, not, just, not just the meat and everything that had been there all day, but just when you start burning flesh, yeah, it, it doesn't smell good. And all of that was part of their job. And he says, this is what happened. They, there were these people that burned these, all the leftover stuff outside the camp. And then he goes on to say that 
Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. He was taken outside of Jerusalem, marched up the mountainside of Mount Moriah to, Cal to, to Calvary, and crucified outside the city where he died and shed his blood. And then he, being the high priest, took his blood and presented it to the Father at the true mercy seat in heaven. So that he then took his blood and was able, as high priest, to present it onto the mercy seat in, in heaven. Not the mercy seat in, in the temple, but the mercy seat of heaven. But he was crucified outside the camp and buried outside the camp. And this is something that we look at, that he fulfilled all the sacrifices. He fulfilled all of the anger of the God towards sin. You know, we use the word propitiation. It's a very large word that we, most people don't know the meaning of, but he took the full anger of the Father for all of the sins in the world upon himself. All the anger of the Father for sin of all the sins of all time fell on Jesus. Now, just want to think about that for a moment. God is angry at one sin. And everybody has committed so many sins, and you multiply that by all the people of the world for all time, and the Father poured out the anger for all sin upon Jesus on the cross. That is hard to fathom. And people go, well, how can one man take all the, all the sin? Well, because he was the God-man. He was also God. So therefore, he could take the, all of the punishment that was due all of sin. No man could have ever done it. Even if a man could have lived a perfect life, they could have died for their own sin that they didn't make, or maybe the sin of one other person, but they could not have died for all the sin. They could not have taken that kind of pain. And we really understand what Jesus went through on the cross. It was horrible to be beat with the flagellum. It was horrible to be pounded on, you know, with a bag over his head and saying, tell us who's hitting you. It was terrible to be nailed to that cross and put to the shame of the cross. Because we have nice pictures of him on the cross. He has a loincloth. That would not have happened on the cross. They crucified these guys naked because they wanted ultimate shame to be occurred to them. And then they put the crown of thorns on him. And all of that was terrible and awful. That is the pain, the physical pain he took for the sins of the world. And then he was the sins of the world were placed on him and the Father turned his back on Jesus. And again, all that other stuff was awful. Don't get me wrong, it was awful. None of us would have survived it, period. And he took on the sins of the world and darkness covered the world for three hours. The Father blanked out everything. There's a lot of people going, well, it was a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse. Well, no solar eclipse ever lasts three hours. So it wasn't an eclipse. It was God darkening the sky so that nobody would see what was happening as Jesus was rejected 
by the Father. And that had to have been the greatest pain that he went through. He had always been in fellowship with the Father, never separated from the Father in all of eternity. And now the Father turns his back on him. And probably the Holy Spirit had to turn his back on him. He was alone for the first time in all of eternity. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, that was an experience. And, you know, it's hard to understand. God knows all things. And yet, how did he know something like that when he's never experienced it? And, I, and that one drives me up the wall. <laughs> you know, God knows everything. But how do you know what it means to be separated from yourself? And that has never happened in all of, ti- all of time. And yet, he, to be all-knowing, he had to know that experience as well. You know, so it's like, okay, God, you know that. I'm going to, you know, maybe I'll ask him in heaven. <laughs> I probably won't care when I get to heaven. You know, have you ever thought about this? All the questions we have for him, that we're going to ask him in heaven, we're probably not going to care when we get there. You know? And if we really need to know, he'll tell us. You know, it's like the song we sang this morning, Until Then. All the trials and tribulations here, were, if, if remembered in heaven, and they say when, but I think it's if remembered in heaven, only, only bring a smile. You know, all these things that have troubled us, we'll think back on, oh, well, that, that, I don't care about that anymore. I, it, I'm here now. I'm here now. It doesn't matter. I think God's saying, well, they don't remember anyway. They don't remember in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, probably true. Probably a true statement on that. But Jesus suffered outside the city. Outside of heaven, he suffered. You know, Jesus came to this world to live as a man. Now, have you ever thought about how much suffering that had to have been too? He hung his glory and his power aside to live as a human being. And, you know, we, write, we read stories all the time, the prince and the pauper, where the prince finds somebody looking like him, switches places and find out what it's really like to live as a poor person. Jesus became human and did not have all of the power. He was God, so technically he had all the power, but he says he laid it aside to become a man and live for 34 years as a human, only to die an awful, terrible death and be separated from the Father. Not only did he give up all of his power and his glory and his prestige of being in heaven to become a man, he knew that at the end of that period, he was going to be separated from the Father to finalize the payment, because the ultimate payment for sin is death and separation from the Father. So for him to pay that debt, he had to be separated from the Father. And that was the awful part of the crucifixion. That was the awful part of his 34-year expedition as to be human, to end it by being separated from the Father. Now, he knew that he was going to be raised from the dead and be reestablished with the Father. 
but he was separated from the Father for a period of time, which would have been his ultimate pain to buy us back. And he willingly did it for us. When we think of love, there is nobody that has that kind of love. Instinctively, somebody might jump on a grenade or jump in front of a bullet you know, to save somebody. But usually if they thought about it too hard, they probably wouldn't do it. If they knew the consequences were going to be their death, they may or may not do it. You know, but and they would have to really like the person to do it. Jesus did it for humanity. And when he did it, humanity was his enemy. There was nobody that even liked him. The disciples had run away. Now, they, had, they were looking at him like we've made the wrong choice. We followed the wrong we, you know, we bet on the wrong horse. <laughs> you know, and here he is dying. And because we are his followers, we're next. Because what had they done to every other false messiah? They went after all their followers and killed off their followers. So they're looking at him. Oh, we, we picked the wrong, the wrong messiah. It won't be long until we're all hanging on crosses or in the bottom of a pit being stoned. And they abandoned him. And he died alone. But he did it for us willingly. This is why I love the song, He Could Have Called 10,000 Angels, because the the love that he showed is so precious. And every time I hear that song, I think of heaven and watching the angels all standing around the throne of God. All right, Father, how long are you going to let these little peons down there do this to you? When are you going to just let us, when is he going to call? When are you going to let us go rescue him? You know, we, and I can just see him chomping at the bit. You know, how can this be happening? We don't understand. And he died on that cross for us so that he could sanctify us, make us holy. This is the beautiful part of the cross. This is the beautiful gift that was given to us when he showed us the love. I love my creation so much that I'm going to buy them back. And this is why we're told Jesus was the second Adam. Adam sold humanity's birthright away. Man was created to rule this planet. Their sin gave that birthright away. Jesus redeemed that birthright and brought it back into his possession and then gives us the gift of saying you are my children I am going to bring you back into relationship with the father that you were supposed to have from the beginning created to be his children created to be in relationship with him and that relationship has been restored by the sacrifice on the cross and we have been sanctified What a gift that we have. All that he went through so that we could be his. And in the ultimate thing, it then says that the church is the bride of Christ. So not only has he redeemed us, he has made us just as the husband and wife is supposed to be, one. Or as other scriptures say, we're joint heirs with him. Everything he gets, we get. Because we are one with him, because he has bought us in such an intimate relationship. He says, 
We are one. And we don't understand that. He tried to picture it through the family. He tried to picture it from marriage. And then Satan has worked so hard to destroy the picture that right now we get so many people in today's world to go, marriage, why bother? They only in divorce anyway, so why bother? They're losing the picture of Jesus and his church. They look at you know, God being our father and going, yeah, who wants a father? They're mean, they leave, they, they abuse you, and they look and say, you know, God don't want a father. <laughs> Satan is trying to destroy all the pictures of God and the father that have been put into place. And we need to, as a church, to lift up the true meaning of these pictures. I think one of the saddest statements in, that is out there is that 50% of all Christians get divorced. Now, somebody said it's quite obvious because only Christians are getting married, but, uh, you know, but it's still a sad statement. You know, that we're in a relationship that says this is what pictures Christ and the church, and we don't honor it. And, you know, I love being a member of the church, and I, I love meeting people that have been married 50, 60 years because God is the center of their marriage. And I think it's more important, I think it's wonderful that in church we see people who honor the marriage and live that way. Uh, you know, Lynn and I just celebrated our 40th anniversary, and, you know, and in the world I expect them to say, well, that's, you know, that's a long time. But when I heard Christians say it, it's like, okay, aren't we getting married for, you know, until death do we part? At least that's what I, that's what I promised to do. I took a pledge when I was being married. Part of my oath was, you know, we were going to stay together, you know, sickness and health, till death do we part. And I meant it. I, you know, it's not been easy sometimes, but I meant it. And when I hear all these people, especially from the church, saying, wow, it's such a long time. I'm going, no, I made a promise before God and before the, other, the members of the church that I got married in that I was going to love my wife till death do us part. And to me, it's something that I take very serious because Jesus will get to say the same thing to us. Till death do us part. And there won't be another death for Jesus. And once we die, we'll be in heaven. We'll never die again either. We will never be parted from Jesus for all of eternity because we don't die. You know, even when our body dies, all we do is transition from one realm to the other. And you know, I kind of think of the idea when you see the movies where the ghost, you know, the body stays behind and the ghost goes out, you know, except that we're not a ghost, we will go with that same mentality. We look back, there's the body. Oh, hi, God. <laughs> I'm here with you. Yeah, that thing back there, we're leaving it. We don't want it anymore. At least I don't want mine anyway when I die. I, I want the new body God's going to give me. I kind of hope he gives me my, my 22, 23-year-old body that was in shape. Had a lot of hair. You know, no fat. Uh, but who knows what he's going to give. It'll be a perfect body. You know, and he'll say, well, you wanted that one. I've got one better for you than even that one was. You know, and I don't know what those bodies are going to be, but it'll be something in a prime of life when everything is, is good. 
no aches and pains, no forgetfulness. It'll be a perfect body that he's going to give us that he paid the price for and that he is going to honor us for because he has sanctified us. And I'm just going to read this last verse here, 12. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, offered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. This is kind of an interesting statement. We go outside bearing his reproach. Jesus suffered in this world. We are going to suffer. If we don't suffer, there's probably something wrong. Because the world does not like us. Satan does not like us. And for some strange reason, God gives them permission to make things life, life hard on us. Part of that is to teach us to depend upon him, I know. Because every time I suffer, it forces me to depend on him or fall flat on my face, one or the other. When I, when I depend on him, I come out victorious. When I don't depend on him, I fall flat on my face in the mud and he has to pick me up and clean me up a little bit and say, let's do it this again. And we get to go through the same trial all over again or something very similar to that trial. But we will suffer. And this is something we as Christians have to come to grips with. The message we want to hear is get saved and everything is going to be perfect for the rest of your life. And unfortunately, there are lots of churches that try to teach that message. You know, uh, get saved and everything is going to be good for the rest of your life unless you sin. And then it's your fault that you didn't, didn't live this perfect life and just confess your sins and, and rebound back into this you know, healthy, wealthy, wise mentality and, and everything will be good for you. And if you're in that church and you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, then they're going, what have you done wrong? They'll bind you right back up into law and, and, and no grace for you. It's your fault if you don't listen to their message. And I have no clue where, what Bible verses they use to find that kind of a message. They'll pull a couple out of, out of, out of sight. Usually they'll look to the book of Job. And the problem with reading anything doctrinally out of the book of Job is you've got to look at who's saying the message. When, it, when uh, Elihu, Abihu, and, and Eliphaz say something, it's not something you want to be building a doctrine on. Uh, they're the ones saying, don't you know, Job, that this is what God does? Now, some of what they said has some val validity on it, but they didn't understand God's position on everything. And even Job's answers many times, you don't want to take him because he's answering their there are false things in his, you know, and he's struggling himself. The problem with Job, even though he was a righteous man following God, he believed what they said. He believed the prosperity gospel. As long as you follow God, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, wise, and, and everything's going to be good for you. He believed it. So much of what he was learning through this trials of God allowing him to go into hardship was, God still loves me even when... I'm not healthy, wealthy, healthy, and wise. <laughs> he goes, well, he was still wise, but, <laughs> you know, uh, but still grumbling a little bit. But he learned that God still loves him just as much when he didn't have all the good stuff as he did when he had the good stuff. And that is what God is trying to teach us. Are we going to depend on him? Am I going to look to him and say, God, 
you're still in charge, and I'm still going to trust you no matter what happens. And it's not easy sometimes, we all know that. You know, when we lose a job, we lose a spouse, we lose, you know, we lose something, we're going, I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to get through this. And I'm, I'm suffering. I don't understand. All of this will come down to learning to trust Him. Learning to trust Him in all the hardships. If you don't believe this, look at any character in the Old Testament and how much God used their trials to teach them to trust Him. I don't care which one you look at. Daniel, Joseph, uh, uh, Gideon, Moses, uh, Abraham, any of them. You look at any of them and look at what they went through to, for God to show them His love so that they would learn to trust Him. God is always in our lives giving us things so that we will learn to trust Him and fall back into His arms and say, God, I can't do it. And he's, he's there saying, thank you, that's what I wanted to hear. I want you to know that you can't do anything without me. With God, all things are possible. Without Him, pretty much we fail. <laughs> uh, given enough time, we will fail. With Him, we can do anything. And it will be Him doing the work. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We ask you to guide and lead us. Help us to live your way. Trust you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us, so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.